Saturday morning, we're having a men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. Following that, we will uh, uh, have the deacons meeting at 9 o'clock. And so uh, we will... Probably 8.30 at the deacons meeting. So you're going to tell those... Pray a little quicker. We're going to have the backup cooks cook a little faster. All right. Well, we'll... um, uh, we'll uh, have that on Saturday morning. Then, of course, I will be gone. I will be leaving on Wednesday, and uh, T- Dr. Tommy Ice will be speaking Thursday, Sunday, and Tuesday. Then we'll have a little special presentation the next Thursday, and then the next week, uh, Rick King's going to be coming in. I've been working with him for the last uh, couple of months, trying to mentor him and develop him into... Uh, learning how to go from what you learn in seminary to what you need to do in the pulpit. And that's a real challenge because seminaries teach you to preach. They don't teach you to communicate in terms of teaching the Word. And many of us who are of a, shall we say, more mature, seasoned generation had to really figure it out on our own because all we had was one or two examples of of pastors who taught, and we had to just figure it out on our own. And uh, that's one of the things we want to do through Chafer Seminary is to be able to teach young men how to teach and not how to give homilies. Um, I don't think the standard operating procedure for homilies does a whole lot except make people emotional and give them a a little feel-good. Today it's mostly entertainment and from what I'm hearing and reading is that the standard thought today on what happens in the pulpit is just terrible. It is no longer is it the question, um, is it is it teaching, are the, are the students being taught verse-by-verse teaching or that they should do expositional preaching? They do topical all the time. And I'm hearing from people in the pews and some seminary students that that the idea of, of teaching through a book of the Bible and going verse by verse is is so old-fashioned. It, it's, it's antiquated. It's antediluvian. It is um, nobody does that anymore. It's not going to attract any hearers. And so when you have topical message like like that, that's just a vehicle for the pastor to teach whatever he wants to teach. He's not teaching what the Bible says. To get to where you can do topical messages well, you have to have exegeted every single verse that you're referencing in those topics. And that takes about 30 years of verse-by-verse teaching to get to the point where you can do that effectively. And it doesn't produce mature believers because they don't know the Bible. They, they don't really know how these uh, principles for living, to be nice about it, how that relates to the Bible. How did you get those 10 points out of the Bible? They, and they even if they give you Bible verses, you go there and you say, well, that doesn't even fit the context. So anyway, that's my rant for this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer while I get back in fellowship. And then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. My Father, we're thankful for this time we have tonight to be encouraged by your word, to work through the scriptures, to understand what you have revealed to us and what it means to our lives that we can understand what the scriptures say, what they mean, what they meant to the original audience, and how that relates to our lives, that you have revealed this to be understood. It is not a mystery. It is not something that uh, we have to go into deep prayer or meditation over. It's just a matter of studying the word, coming to understand the original languages, and, and then thinking through the thoughts of the author so that we can understand what he means and how that applies to our lives, and then take what we learn in Peter, and fit it together with things that are taught in other places of the Word. Father, we're so thankful that we have your Word to instruct us, to inform us, to uh, encourage us, and strengthen us. 
because your word is truth, and because it is truth, it edifies. Now, Father, help us to understand what we're studying tonight and put it into practice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're zeroing in on a verse that is highly significant, but we won't get there tonight. And I thought we were. I was actually prepared to begin to talk about what apologetics is all about. It is a term that a lot of people uh, misunderstand and misapply. And it's a very important topic, but since I'm leaving for Kiev next week and won't be here to teach the next three Thursday nights, I really didn't want to get started. And then this afternoon as I was getting ready to pull things together, since we weren't in Peter last week, we were talking about the Bible and borders, immigration, and refugees. I had had to go back two weeks and discovered that I had not finished the previous verse or the context. So I think it's very important if we're going to get into First Peter 3.15, why we need to give an answer for the hope that is in us, how that's set in the context of First Peter 3.13. So we're going to look tonight at the doctrine I began the last time, which is the doctrine of the goodness of God. And also the main idea really in this paragraph and that's developed in the subsequent paragraphs is suffering for doing the right thing, suffering for uh, being right, unjust suffering. So let's look at the context. Just a reminder that a text taken out of the context leaves you with a con job. And that's exactly what happens in a lot of messages, as I referenced in my rant before I prayed. This is what happens in so many of these topical messages that are advertised, that are supposedly scratching some itch, is that they have taken the text out of the context and you're left with a con job. And the other thing that happens is when you uh, take the text out of the context, you're left with a pretext. And that, too, happens. I gave a lot of illustrations of of some verses that are used that way. Uh, Last week when I talked about borders and refugees and what the Bible really talks about borders, there's a great cartoon that I'm adding to the PowerPoint presentation last week where Jesus is instructing his disciples. And one of the disciples raises his hand and said, "Uh, Jesus, can you tell us a little bit about immigration? And Jesus says, well, I do know that that God built a wall around heaven and there's only one gate. And there's extreme vetting to get in. (laughs) Right on target. So, okay, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, that notice it didn't say if they defame you as evildoers, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile Your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing well. Now, key words that we look at here, first of all, we see a if in the first verse, if you become followers of what is good. Notice good is used there. It's used again in a contrast between evildoers and those who are doers of good literally in the text. And uh, or that's down in verse 13. You have evildoers in verse 16 and good conduct in 16. Then 17 is doing good and doing evil. So this is talking about contrasting that which is good with that which is evil and how that works its way out in our lives. That if we are doing well, the normal expectation is that that's going to bring a certain amount of respect or people will will honor us or affirm what we're doing. But there are cases when even when we're doing the right thing, we do everything right, we think through everything, we're being a benefit to people, a blessing to people, we're doing everything in obedience to the Lord, 
and bad things happen. And that's a reason because of not being taught that some people, when they hit unjust suffering or difficult times that they don't deserve, that they turn away from the Lord. So it's important to understand this this doctrine because what happens is they begin to question the goodness of God, which is the doctrine I began to explain last week. Now in verse 13, Peter says, And who is he? Who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? So there's a couple of things we have to talk about here. First of all, the word harm is really an interesting word. It is the verb kakao. Uh, the, the noun form is a word that means evil. The verb form just means to do evil, uh, to do something bad or for something bad to happen in the sense of uh, misfortune or suffering. And in fact, it's used that way, but it's interesting how this word is used in the New Testament. For for one thing, it is used in Acts by, by uh, Stephen in his last message before they uh, stone him to death. And he talks about how the Jews were oppressed during the slavery time of slavery in Egypt and also others. And so in verse 6, he says, God spoke in this way that his descendant would dwell in a foreign land and, and our descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. So this is talking about something serious. The point is that this verb is only used five times in the New Testament and each time it's used, it's talking about serious persecution and oppression. It's not talking about just run-of-the-mill difficult times. Verse 19, this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies uh, so they might not live. That's in Acts, Acts uh, seven nineteen. Now, that's the same verb there. Those are both related to Israel and the history there with Israel. In Acts 12, 1, it's applied to persecution of, in the church. In Acts 12, 1, the reference is to Herod Agrippa I. And we read now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, he's not just giving them a difficult time. He's persecuting them. And they're being arrested, and this would cover the same period of time when, when Saul was a Pharisee and was uh, persecuting the church. Acts 14.2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And that word poisoned is the same verb. It doesn't mean poison. It's doing harm to them, serious harm. It's the same word, uh, cacao. And Acts 18.10 uh, this is a situation when Paul is in Corinth. He's experiencing opposition from the Jews that are in the synagogue. And God gives him a promise and says, I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you that is in Corinth. For I have many people in this city. So God encourages him in the midst of that difficult time. So when Peter uses this word, uh, and he makes the statement in verse 13, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of good? He's not saying that if you do good, nobody will oppress you, nobody will persecute you, nobody will do anything to uh, ever to harm you. He's, he's using a word that indicates unusual persecution that is not the norm. And he's making a point that generally speaking, he's not laying down an absolute universal principle. He's saying normally uh, you will not be persecuted if you do that which is good. Although there are exceptions and exceptional situations when that has, that has taken place. Then we read, and who is he who will persecute you? Uh, I think that would be a better translation. If you become followers of what is good, the if there's a third class condition, and that emphasizes the fact that maybe you will, maybe you won't become uh, a follower or an imitator of what is good. It's up to them. 
the word good that is used there is the word good, which is uh, our agathos in the Greek, which has the idea of intrinsic value. So it's talking about somebody who is focusing their life on doing that which honors God. Agathos is used primarily to refer to that which God produces in our own life through our walk by the Holy Spirit. Now, the word followers is, is, is a word that is uh, debated because there's a textual difference between uh, the word that's found in the majority of documents, uh, or uh, majority of, of um, ancient uh, manuscripts, and that's the word on the bottom, mimetes, where we get our word mimic. It means to imitate someone and, or to be a follower of someone. The critical text, which is ultimately at this point based on uh, a couple of manuscripts that were found in Egypt, problems with those manuscripts, they're older. The reason they survived is because of the dry climate in Egypt. But Egypt was also a hotbed for heresy. So there's a lot of debate over this. And there's the one group which dominates a lot of modern scholarship, that older is better. And then there's the other group that believes that God preserves his word in the majority of, of manuscripts and that uh, that there are real problems with the older is better view because a newer manuscript, one that is copied in the, let's say, the 8th or 9th century A.D., can be a faithful copy of an older manuscript that is no longer around from the 2nd century. So, And then the 3rd century docu uh, manuscript we have may have errors in it. So older is not inherently better, uh, even though on the surface it looks that way. And there, it's a much more complicated than that. I've really uh, made that uh, a, a very simplistic explanation. But I believe that, that the majority text usually presents the better reading. And so what Peter is saying here is you're imitators of what is good. He's, he's in here. The, the other word that's translated uh, in some verses, if you become jealous of what is good, I think the idea there is just, just passionate for what is good. And they can both communicate the same ideas, but just the, the simplicity of the word imitators, that you're carrying this out in your life. Uh, there, there's an emphasis through this section on conduct all through here. And that's what Peter is talking about is the conduct or the way of life of believers. So I think mimetes also fits the context better than zelotes. Now, the author of the New International Dictionary on New Testament theology makes a comment related to good that in the Old Testament, the concept of the, the good is indissolubly linked with personal faith in God. Good in the Old Testament isn't this abstract idea of the good which comes out of Greek philosophy. It's an idea of the good that is intrinsically related to the God of righteousness. So it is not just an abstract idea. And if you're familiar with, with the history of Greek philosophy, this idea of the good as an abstract concept, runs throughout Greek, Greek thought. So he says, an idea of the good freed from the concept of God as personal, uh, comparable with the ideas of Greek and Hellenistic thought, is inconceivable. The Bible just doesn't present it that way. God himself is good inherently, intrinsically. He's not just conforming to some abstract ideal. And that's why we need to understand this doctrine of the goodness of God based on his character. And it's one that has been emphasized a couple of times in our study in the Psalms on Tuesday night. And as we've been going through 1 Samuel and dealing with the Psalms that David wrote. And one of these Psalms that emphasizes the goodness of God is Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. God abhors unrighteousness and injustice. So he only loves that which conforms to his character. And then in synthetic parallelism, this is where the second line expands or states an idea in addition to the first line. 
the psalmist says the earth is full of the goodness of God. The goodness of God is used in parallel to summarize those first two words, righteousness and justice. And because God is righteous and just, that is, uh, that is reflected and displayed in his creation. So the psalmist says, if you look at the earth, if you look at his creation in, in a nonverbal sense of revelation, it reveals the goodness of God. God has supplied us with everything that we need for food. He's given us everything we need to live, to enjoy life. He's blessed us with, with uh, physical beauty around the world and all of his creation. Everything in creation echoes the character of God. This is the same thing the psalmist said when he wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament or the earth shows forth his handiwork. It's echoed in in, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, which says that, that God's invisible attributes are made visible. They are, we see who he is through that which is a clearly seen. So his invisible attributes are manifest through the things that are clearly seen. So how can something be something invisible be clearly seen? So he's Paul's making the same point in Romans one. Psalm thirty one nineteen says, "Oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you." So here it's talking about the goodness of God in terms of that's the foundation for God's blessing in our lives. That which he's laid up or provided or set aside for those who fear him. That's those who are wise, those who are maturing believers. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. So, so these blessings from God's goodness have been prepared from eternity past for those who trust God, not in the sense of justification, but those who live their lives trusting God and being obedient to him. And then it's displayed in the presence of man. We're testimonies before the world. So when we look at the essence of God, as I pointed out last time, we look at these basic attributes, his sovereignty, his righteousness, his justice, and love. Righteousness, justice, love... Uh, fit together, as I pointed out last last time, like primary colors, like uh, uh, red, blue, and yellow. And they these attributes of God are broken out like this, and we understand the components, and we talk about them in an academic way, but they're blended together in the personality of God. And the same way is true for all of us. We can sit down and somebody can describe you in terms of eight or ten attributes, but in reality, those are blended and mixed together in your personality and in, in, in who you are. So this, the righteousness and justice of God, which reflects the standard of his character, which is righteousness. Justice is the application of that to his people, to the world, to creation. And his love, which is his care and seeking to do the highest and the best for the objects of his love. So breaking this down, that God is good, is clearly stated numerous times in the Psalms, and it's uh, primarily found in praise Psalms and passages that describe the praise of God in the temple or in the tabernacle. Passages like Psalm 34, 8, which we studied not long ago, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. It's the idea of tasting is the idea of fully experience. It isn't the idea of going through the, uh, the grocery store on a Saturday where you're just uh, tasting samples of food, but it is tasting, eating it, making it completely part of you, sitting down at a meal and uh, fully experiencing the goodness of God in your life. Psalm 25, 8. Uh, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. That's the outworking of God's love. He teaches us about sin and what the dangers are of sin and what the consequences are. In Psalm 54, 6. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name O Lord, for it is good just because your character is right. When he talks about the name of the Lord, name in, 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 in Hebrew thought wasn't just a label, 
but it said something about the object that is named or the person that is named. And so when we read praises like believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about believe on who he is, on his character. And here praising God's name is praising his character, praising his attributes. Psalm 86 um, or 69:16, hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness, your faithful, loyal love, your chesed is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. So mercies there is parallel to loving kindness, his chesed, the goodness that comes from his faithfulness to his covenant. Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. This is because you're rightly adjusted to the righteousness of God. And so God's justice is satisfied. His love is free to flow and he forgives us. He's uh, ready to forgive. He's abundant in mercy to those who call upon you. Psalm 100 verse 5, again, just the blanket statement. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth. That is, that which is reveal, revealed is endures to all generations. Other psalms emphasize this, such as Psalm 106.1, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. It just clearly just states this as his character. Psalm 107.1 says almost the same thing, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 118.1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 118.29, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Uh, Psalm 135.3, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Psalm 136, 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Again and again and again, you have this drumbeat in the Psalms that God is good. He is good to us. Well, why do bad things happen if God is so good? Maybe it's because we have a distorted understanding of what goodness is. Maybe we have a superficial understanding of what God is teaching us by letting us live in a fallen world that living in a fallen world and experiencing the consequences of sin and evil is not because God is not a good God. Maybe there is a higher reason that we're not informed about, that we don't know about. We're informed about it generally, but not specifically. This is what Job ran into when he dealt with all of his suffering, is God asked him a series of rhetorical questions starting in, in uh, Job 38, and the whole point is that you, if I answered you, Job, and told you why this suffering happened to you, you couldn't understand it any more than you can understand the mechanics of creation. So just trust me. That's, that's the point. Second Chronicles 7, 3, we read, When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good. Same kind of thing happens uh, under Ezra when they go to the second temple. Um, or, or, excuse me, this is a parallel, actually, because Second Chronicles is post-exilic, so this is talking about that. Uh, they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Again and again, the goodness of God is the basis for worship. Third point, or second point, rather. One way that theologians describe the attributes of God is to categorize his, his moral attributes. For example, uh, one theologian that is often quoted today, often used. His uh, Systematic Theology is a textbook at Dallas Seminary. It replaced Louis Burkhoff, which replaced uh, Louis Barry Chafer. And I'm I'm not uh, recommending Erickson's uh, Christian theology, but uh, it's interesting that he breaks down God's moral purity when he talks about his attributes. He breaks down that moral purity as holiness, righteousness, and justice. So that's the same basic thing that uh, I've been saying here in terms of God's righteousness, justice, and love, and his, his eternal life. Uh, he defines uh, his, God's integrity as his genuineness, his veracity, his um, faithfulness, and then he draws out that this involves his benevolence, which means his grace, his mercy, and his persistence. 
Different theologians will organize these attributes in different ways, but at the core, the idea of God's uh, goodness relates to how they understand the moral uh, purity or what we would call the righteousness of God. So that in terms of the third point, the goodness of God involves primarily his righteousness and his justice. Often theologians will also define these two together as his integrity or his holiness, such as in Psalm 33, 5, which I've mentioned already, he loves righteousness and justice. But holiness is a little different concept. I remember first hearing this many, many years ago. I don't know who I heard it from first, but it's very, very common. And I've come to question this because holiness is really a, a distinct idea. It describes the uniqueness of God. It's the Hebrew word kodesh from the verb kadash, which means that God is unique. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's one of a kind. And so part of that is, of course, his righteousness and his justice because he's the standard of what is right. But he's unique, and we see this in the way it's used. Uh, Exodus fifteen eleven, uh, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and, and doing wonders? See, God is, there's nothing like him, so he's totally unique and uh, distinct. In fact, Millard Erickson in his Christian uh, theology recognizes this. I ran across this when I was reading him on the goodness of God, and I thought, well, he's done a very good job here. He said, the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, means marked off or withdrawn from common or ordinary use. The verb from which it is derived suggests to cut off or to separate, whereas in the religions of the people around Israel, the adjective holy was freely applied to objects, actions, and personnel involved in the worship, uh, involved in the worship. In Israel's covenant worship, it was very freely used of the deity himself. Okay, so in, in what he's pointing out here is that in the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the word is used more than it is to the gods and goddesses of the pagans, overwhelmingly so to emphasize that he's different from all those other gods. And so even though the word in Hebrew is used to describe objects and actions and sometimes people, that's minimal. The God of the Bible is different from all of the other gods. A fifth point that we see, well, I've got two other verses in my notes to go to on that. Leviticus eleven forty four and 45 um, God says, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, it ultimately goes back to because God is a certain way, we're to imitate him. Uh, 11.45, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We're to be set apart to him because he is the unique and distinct God. Okay, a fifth observation or fifth point in understanding the goodness of God is that righteousness describes the perfect character, uh, the perfect standard of God's character. Righteousness says this is what's right. Now, it's right not because God conforms to an external or abstract idea of what is right. People get that idea and then they create this abstract idea, which basically becomes another idol. And then you come along and you say, well, well, God... God does X, Y, or Z, and then they'll say, well, if he does that, he can't be righteous because X, Y, or Z doesn't fit my idea of righteousness. For example, some uh, some millennial may come along and say, righteousness is social justice. God, You say God doesn't believe in social justice, therefore God can't be righteous because my idea of righteousness includes social justice. So we have to see what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is righteous. He, he in and of himself, his actions and his revelation defines what righteousness is, and it's embedded within his character. It's not something he conforms to. So our idea of righteousness needs to conform to God's character, not some abstract idea. And you see this with Christians all the time. 
where they generate some kind of idea of Jesus or God that's not based on the Bible. And then if they start reading the Bible, they get all confused because God doesn't fit their idolatrous concept of Jesus or God. And so we we have to get rid of those things and just focus on what the Scripture says and what the Scriptures describe. Now, righteousness comes from the Hebrew word tzedek, which can mean righteousness as the standard of God's character, or it can also refer to the application of it as justice. The same thing is true in the New Testament. The quality of righteousness is indicated by the word dikaiosune, which can be both in the same way. It can be the standard of righteousness or the application of that standard. In fact, I ran across another good quote on this from a book. I think I, one of the first, very first books I Xeroxed when I was in seminary, back before you had computers and everything else, there were just so many really old books that were no longer in print. And the only way you could get these books into your library was to Xerox them. And I learned this from Randy Price. And Randy and I would sit up sometimes all night long Xeroxing books and notes and things like that. And if you look at my library, I still have all kinds of volumes of books that are just Xeroxes that we bound together so that we could have these. And this was one of them, a very well-respected book. But Christian books and scholarly books don't sell a whole lot, so they'll be in print for a while, two or three years, and then they disappear. But uh, that's what this quote's based on. It says, the root... That is the root for uh, tzedek. The root basically connotes conformity to an ethical or moral standard. It's claimed by Snaith in his work, Distinctive Ideas of the Old Testament, quote, the original significance of the root kadosh to have been to make straight. But he adds that it stands for a norm. See, when we talk about the character of God and the norms and standards of God, This comes out of the very language that is used to describe God. His righteousness sets the norm. It sets the standard for what is right or wrong. Um, He refers to an ethical moral standard, and of course in the Old Testament, that standard is the nature and will of God. It's not something that's abstract. That's what you get from Greek Uh, Greek philosophy is making these ideas abstract values. In the Bible, they're they're integral to God. He is the one who is righteous in all his ways and holy in all of his works. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.3, we read, um, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. So God's righteousness excludes all evil. Uh, Habakkuk says, Your pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours? Habakkuk was really irritated with God because he starts off self-righteously saying, God, look at these people. He's, 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 He's really upset with the immorality and the idolatry of the people in the southern kingdom. He says, God, you've got to punish them. They are horrible. And God says, I'm... If God were a Texan, he would have said, I'm fixing to. And uh, he's, and God said, the Babylonians are coming. And Habakkuk just, I can see, see him, his mouth dropped open. He said, how can you use them? They're worse. And so God's making this, this is from Habakkuk's statement. He's saying, God, you can't look on evil. You know, recognizing that, that that's true, but he's applying it in a wrong way. Uh, He's saying, you can't look on evil. How can you use them? And God's going to correct him and say that I'm I'm basically a distinct holy God and I can use them for my purposes if I want to. James 1.13 articulates the same principle in the New Testament and says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, God tests us, but he doesn't tempt us. And that's the difference between uh, giving somebody an external uh, option to sin and then uh, enticing them internally. Uh, Testing comes two ways. If you've been on a diet 
and uh, some of you have, and you have gone through a period of time where you haven't had any sugar or chocolate cake or ice cream or whatever, pasta for three or four weeks, but you eat a good, healthy meal, and then somebody comes over and offers you chocolate cake, it's real easy for you to say, no, I'm not attracted to that because your appetite's been satisfied. But then if you haven't eaten in two or three hours and you're really starting to get hungry and somebody offers you that piece of chocolate cake, they might be lucky if they have all their fingers still attached when you pull it back because now there's something inside you that is drawn to that and and you have this internal drive to consume that chocolate cake. Well, that's that's how sin works. God tests us externally. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness or better a better way to phrase it is God creates opportunities where we are our faith is tested to see if we'll apply the word or not. But he doesn't internally uh, test us. He's not trying to uh, trip us up or cause us to fail. Job 34 says, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Psalm 89, which is a tremendous psalm, it's a meditation on the Davidic covenant. Uh, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I love this verse. This is the verse on the integrity of God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And because that's the foundation, then genuine mercy and truth can come out from it. Because of who God is as a righteous and just God, then he can be truly merciful to people and he can he will be uh, uh, faithful. I think the word there translated uh, a truth is emmet which is related to the word uh, amen, the verb amen. But we'll talk about this, I think, on Tuesday night, that often uh, older translators took that as meaning truth in an objective sense, but a lot of newer uh, recent studies take it as being faithful, which I think is probably a better rendition. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne. So it's a restatement of the same idea from Psalm 89. Psalm 9, uh, 4, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Psalm 9, 8, he shall judge the world uh, in or by righteousness. That's the standard of his judgment. And he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. There's many other verses, Psalm 33, 5, Psalm 35, 24, Psalm 89, 14, which I mentioned already. Um, These are verses that reinforce the idea of God's righteousness and justice that allows him to be truly good to us. Sixth point. Justice is the application of God's righteousness. So we looked at righteousness as the standard of God's character, and justice is its outworking. Psalm 32, 4, he's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. Now, this isn't using a form of setic. It's using a different word, a synonym, mishpat, which means uh, the execution or outworking of righteousness or executing a judicial decision. He's a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So that makes him good. He is truly intrinsically, truly intrinsically good. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. So we see that both grace and mercy are said to come from God because he is a God of justice. And then blessed, and the word there, blessed, doesn't mean happy. It has this idea uh, that we'll see in the, the verse, one of the verses we're studying here in, uh, in verse 14, the next verse in, in 1 Peter, that it has the idea of being privileged, that, that we're privileged um, to wait on him. Isaiah 58, verse 2. 
Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance or the commandments of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They, they take delight in approaching God. And seventh point is benevolence, a word we read and hear something about in scriptures, the goodwill of God. If you break it down, coming from the from the Latin bene, meaning good, and volens from, I think it's volare, which is the word for will. It emphasizes the grace and the love of God that give it, gives or distributes his goodness to man. And then in conclusion, Psalm 10731 says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. So you ought to think about that. When we give thanks to God, we thank him for different things, but do we thank him because he's good to us? Give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So the goodness of God is related to his, his grace, his common grace to bring people to himself. Romans 11.22, also another New Testament passage, therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. So on the one hand, he's good, but the other hand, it emphasizes his judicial uh, punishment. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, Severity, that is, those who rejected God, they receive his judgment. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you too will come under his condemnation. You'll be cut off. So when we read about this verse, talking about followers of what is good, the goodness ultimately is defined by God. And where this goes contextually in verses 14 down through through 17, is that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, which is what's brought up at the beginning of the next verse, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, we think, Lord, I've done everything right. How can I end up being persecuted? And Or how can this happen to me? I've been obedient. I've been to church. I've been giving. I'm studying the Bible. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. How can you let this happen to me? What are we doing? We're questioning the goodness of God. That's why I took the time to go through this. This is foundational to understanding who God is. He defines goodness in and of himself. So then, coming from that framework, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and maybe you will, maybe you won't, uh, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, I put that into italics, which it probably is in your uh, English, because that's a quote from a verse in the Old Testament in Isaiah 8.12. Isaiah 8.12 starts off where God is announcing a judgment that's going to come upon Israel. Uh, the Assyrians are going to come, and they are going to move through the land like a flood. They're not going to destroy the southern kingdom, but that that uh, flood tide of the Assyrians will come right to the very walls of Jerusalem before God stops them. So there's going to be horrible calamity that's caused in the northern kingdoms defeated in 722, and then the Assyrian army will invade further south. And it's pictured as a river uh, that comes because, of course, the central river in Assyria was the Euphrates River. So it's pictured as this, this flood tide that will come. And uh, this is the same time. Notice it's Isaiah 8. What comes to your mind? Any verses come to your mind? Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth. And Isaiah 9, 6, that... Uh, uh, that, that the servant of the Lord will come and he will be called uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, all of those things. It's messianic. This whole three chapters in Isaiah is messianic. And in the middle of this, there's another sign that's given. If you remember uh, Isaiah chapter 7, the uh, king of Israel, Ahab is the king in Judah. Ahab 
or Ahaz rather, is the king in Judah. He's scared to death because the king in the north has allied himself with the kings of Syria, and they want to come and destroy him. They want to destroy the seed of David, the line of David. Ahaz is a pagan, but he doesn't want to see his dynasty wiped out and his children wiped out. And so God gives him a sign, a sign of faithfulness. It's going to be the birth of Emmanuel. Now, a lot of people get confused because there's a second sign that's given there that's a sign related to what's going to happen in that event. It's not the promise of the uh, birth of the virgin birth. It's related to a son that is going to be uh, born to Isaiah. And that son is mentioned in the first part of this chapter. And God gives him a name. And that name is to indicate something about the judgment that's coming. And the name is one of my favorite names in the Old Testament. But you never hear anybody name their children this name. It's Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And the focus is, is this judgment's coming and the Assyrians are coming and they're coming fast. And before he's old enough to talk, all these things are going to happen and will take place. This prophecy will be fulfilled. And in the midst of that, God speaks a prophecy of comfort to Isaiah. And he tells him not to worry about these pagan people that surround him. And so God says to him, don't say a conspiracy uh, concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, because the people rejected truth, so they're saying, oh, this is just a conspiracy. We don't need to worry about the Assyrians. And uh, if you differ with the majority view, then they would threaten you, not unlike today. And so God's final words here are, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And so that's the promise. So Peter borrows that phrase and again i think of this as as another indication that he's writing a jewish background audience because when he quotes from that old testament passage he would he expects his readers to understand its significance that that israel was going to go through and the the southern kingdom was going through an oppressive time northern kingdom would go out into uh, and be scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom would go through this oppressive war, and he's drawing a parallel, and that you shouldn't be afraid because God's still in control no matter how bad things go. So he says, but even if you should suffer, and the word there is posco, and it's um, you've often heard me talk about verbs as a present active indicative or a present active imperative or a subjunctive. Those are moods in the Greek. This is called an optative. And there's only 70 of them in the New Testament. And an optative has an, a, a distinctive nuance or meaning, and that is that it's talking about something that is, that is possible. And so he says, if you should suffer... This is possible that this could happen to you, that you, could, you should suffer for righteousness' sake. You've done everything right, but you're still going to suffer. Jesus did everything right, and he still suffered. It says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Makarios doesn't mean sometimes it has the idea of happy, but usually it's the idea of privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for the Lord and to carry out his will. And we can think of many of the disciples who were killed, martyred. There only one one disciple uh, died of natural causes, and that was the Apostle John. All of the others died for their faith. So the argument here is that Peter is saying, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're privileged. And don't be afraid of their threats. Don't give in to it. You don't have to move into panic palace, and you don't have to get all upset and fall apart and cry and get on Twitter and get on Facebook and tell everybody what's going on. Uh, you just trust the Lord. And the next thing, as a result of that, what you are demonstrating is hope. The way we go through trials is we show that our confidence isn't in this life. It's, it, it's in the Lord. And, and we're going to go through health crises. We're going to go through financial crises. We're going to go through family crises and job crises. But we're not going to let that wipe us out, knock us down, because our confidence is in the Lord. That helps us understand what, what Peter says next. 
He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, I'm going to come back and I want to do a study on uh, two or three weeks talking about how we make a defense, how we uh, answer those who ask for a reason for the hope. But first, we have to understand this context. Uh, first of all, we're told, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. That's the word on the left, hagiadzo. It means to sanctify, to set apart, and one nuance is to honor. It's the idea that, that respect the fact that you've been set apart in Christ, and now in your life you need to reflect that uh, in terms of honoring the Lord in your mind. The word hearts there isn't an emotive term. It is a a thought term. The word cardia talks about the center of our soul, which is our mentality. So this is talking about uh, not get, get you don't answer emotionally. This is going to talk about answering intellectually with your mind. Uh, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Honor the Lord God in your mind or in your thinking, to paraphrase it. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. Now, this is the Greek word apologia, which is the word from which we get our word apology. But this isn't talking about an apology. This is talk. This was a legal term that, that would represent a lawyer making his case before a jury. He's building his case. He's making an argument. He's presenting the facts. And so that's the idea here. If somebody asks you, how come you're not knocked down and wiped out by disasters in life, then you can explain the gospel to them. It's part of, it's part of giving the gospel. And uh, it, it's usually referred to as apologetics. Now, apologetics, as we understand it today, is, is a legitimate discipline. I think it should be another category of, of systematic theology, as many people do. The a lot that has been written and said about apologetics over the last 30 years, just amazing. And I remember a professor in seminary said apologetics were at the forefront in the second, third, and fourth centuries in the early church. Why was that? Because they were a minority in a hostile culture. The intelligentsia, the academia was all against Christians. And so as they were constantly being attacked uh, intellectually for their faith, they had to answer and give evidence for why Christianity, why Christianity was true and why they believed it. When Christians are in a minority culture, they need to think deeply about how they answer the charges brought against them and are hostile to Christianity. In a Christian-dominant culture, you don't have to think about things that much. So in the last 50 years, as we've seen a change in terms of the culture around us accepting biblical Christianity, and as that has turned against us, we need to be always ready. We need to apply this. He didn't say be sometimes ready. If you've been a believer for more than two years, you should be ashamed if you can't rattle off five areas uh, where you are giving evidence of why you believe the Bible is the word of God why you believe in the resurrection, why you believe in the miracles, why you believe in creation, all of that. That's what he's talking about. Explain why you believe that this is true. Of course, to make a statement like that, as we're going to see, it implies a certain understanding of what truth is. If you say, I believe this is true, then you have to understand what belief means and you have to understand what truth is. You are making certain assertions there. We have to talk about these things because when we talk to somebody, when we witness to them, uh, they may ask us certain questions. Now, not everybody will. There are a lot of people who won't ask anything more difficult than, than now would you please read that verse to me again? But there are other people who have, especially the older they get, the more they have heard various, uh, shall we call it fake news, statements about what Christians believe and what the Bible says and the truthfulness of the Bible. And the older they get and the more they've heard all of this, uh, that doesn't mean that they're not positive. I've heard some people indicate, well, you know, I talked to them for five minutes and they, they, they didn't want to believe the gospel, so they're not positive. 
Think about the Apostle Paul for just a little bit. From the time of the, of the, the crucifixion around 33 to the time I believe Paul was saved somewhere around 39 or 40, you have six or seven years, and up until that time that Jesus ambushed him on the road to Damascus, you would have sworn up and down, this guy's never going to see heaven. This guy hates God. He's turned his back on God. He is locked into negative volition. He is murdering Christians. He's persecuting Christians. He's locking them up in jail. He has one of the greatest intellects of our time, and he can refute all these statements that the Christians made, and he can turn their arguments inside and out. Saul will never be a Christian. Guess what? It's not dependent upon your opinion. It's dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit. And God uses us and is pleased to use us to to give a rational, cohesive explanation of the gospel to people. A lot of times it's rather simple. Sometimes the questions are more difficult. We have to go look at sources. Every one of us does. I do. Everybody we know does. And just to help them think through the issues. And it may take a long time. It took a long time with Saul. Uh, I've, I, most of you know the story. Many of you were here at the time uh, when I led um, uh, Jim Callahan to the Lord after 30 years of witnessing to him. He was the professor of military science at Stephen F. Austin when I went there as a student in 1970. It only took 30 years to lead him to the Lord. You know, God had to bring a little lymphoma into his life before he was really ready to listen, but he did, and he trusted in the gospel. A little help from Gene Brown and a couple of others helped uh, bring that out, but I had to go through a, a lot of Christian evidences, talk through a lot of things with him. So that's what we do. We are to prepare to give a defense. How do we do that? To everyone. Notice it doesn't say sometimes to some people. It says always be ready. Now you may never be called to be ready. You may never have to pull those arrows out of your quiver, but you're always to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And because it's a reason, it tells you that Christianity is rational. It's not based on rationalism in the classical philosophical term, but it's based on reason. And we can describe that to people and explain to them why we have this hope, this confident expectation uh, within us. But we do it with gentleness and fear. And other passages, as I'll br bring into this, we're to be patient. 30, 40, 50, 60 years to be patient. I've known a lot of Christians that after five minutes of trying to shoot people with their gospel gun, if they don't respond right away, they start getting pretty irritated and impatient. It's with gentleness and meekness may take a very, very long time. In fact, you may witness to somebody for 60 years in your life and then you die and then at the funeral, that's when they trust Christ. But what you did was you laid a foundation for 60 years because you were patient and kind and gentle. And we do that. Notice there's a semicolon there. So the sentence doesn't end there. It could be a comma. We're to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear in order to have a good conscience. See, if you blow it, and every one of us has done this, we've gotten impatient. We've let it devolve into an argument over who's right and who's wrong. And then what happens? We know that's wrong. We blew that whole opportunity to witness. So what Peter is saying here is in order to have a good, good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, this person you've been witnessing to now slanders you and maligns you, those who revile your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed. They will abuse you. They'll mistreat you. But the issue is your good conduct living the right kind of life. And we've seen this word used numerous times as we go through 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.15, He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, in your way of life. Uh, 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your empty way of life, received from the tradition of your fathers. 1 Peter 2.12, Have your conduct honorable, among the Gentiles, all this same word on a strophe. 
Wives, um, by your conduct, you may win your husbands in 1 Peter 3, 1. Uh, and 1 Peter 3, 2 talks about lifestyle, how you live your life. That's very important. And then he concludes, for it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And we just have something in us that says, if I'm suffering from doing good, that's not right. Well, it's not right. But that's the way it is living in the devil's world. So again, he uses uh, the word suffer, uses the word pasco, uh, talking about uh, enduring persecution or hostility and then doing good or doing evil. And he, he puts these compound words in there, agathopoeo and kakopoeo. And they just simply mean they're contrasted with each other, doing good or doing evil. How we live our life is important. It is our nonverbal apologetic. It is our nonverbal defense of the gospel. What we say and what we do says something about us. But evangelism always has to end in actually telling people the gospel and helping them to understand it and doing it in a kind, patient, and gentle way. And when I get back from Ukraine, we'll start into a little introduction into what biblical apologetics is really all about. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon your truth. Help us to apply these uh, principles, these commands, help us to be motivated to learn and to study so that we can give honest, uh, solid answers to people who are looking for answers and being able to tell the difference between those who are just wanting to argue and those who really want answers. Help us to be faithful witnesses of your grace and of the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.